0: Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. We'll be reading uh, verses um, 22 through 37 there. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. Hear God's word. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he, that is Jesus, healed him. So that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven." And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the good tree, uh, either make the good tree, the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. May the Lord help us uh, to understand and to believe and to apply this portion of his word. It seems that uh, some things uh, never change. Uh, even as you may uh, note uh, here more recently, uh, as politicians and, and parties begin to, to gear up for some upcoming elections, uh, we see uh, opposing camps leveling accusations ...against which, uh, against one another, which uh, are not so much what is actually being spoken or things that are proposed... ...but uh, what is underneath the words that have been spoken. Uh, in the long run, the charges really uh, are distilled and seem to come down to this. Don't believe what this person is proposing. Don't judge what you see on the surface... Because deep down underneath, this group is in league with the devil. Now, they wouldn't say it that way. Uh, We're more sophisticated uh, than that. But in essence, I believe that is what uh, they'd like you to believe. And this is the kind of way that Jesus was being dealt with in our text by the religious leaders of his day. The occasion was this. A man was blind and deaf and mute because the word used here in verse 22 that's translated only mute includes deafness. And this man was brought to Jesus, a man who in other words was cut off from nearly every way that we consider uh, precious and, and, and indispensable in our relationships with others. We look at those whom we love and we speak to them and we hear from them we tell them of our love and hear words of affection. This is the way that we also carry on business and commerce. We look, we see, we speak, we hear the ways that we communicate except for touch. And this man did not have any of those, and Jesus, by the power of God, healed him. Now that's what's happened. Uh, that was the occasion of everything that follows in this text. And the response of the crowd in verse 23 was astonishment. They were amazed. That would be our response uh, as well. I I think too often we read the Scriptures, and even if we wouldn't sort of admit it to ourselves, uh, our sort of uh, operative uh, principle uh, is that um, all these ages in the Bible that there were uh, you know, people were constantly seeing miracles, um, all were rather routinely exposed to uh, this uh, uh, hand of God supernaturally working and sort of setting aside natural and physical laws. But we forget that in the thousands of years of history recorded uh, and and covered by the old and new Testaments, if you were take all the miraculous periods in which miraculous things took place, you could compress that into a relatively short span of time, perhaps as little as a hundred years, because it was only at a few times, at at, at, at critical times in redemptive history, it is as if the Lord were turning a corner in redemptive history that the Bible records miraculous activity taking place. And for this reason people who were just like you and me uh knew that blind people just didn't suddenly receive their sight and they knew that that deaf and mute people just didn't suddenly begin to hear and speak and so they were amazed when they saw this happening they didn't just say uh you know there's Jesus doing his thing again uh there he is working miracles again uh, they were astonished staggered as you and I would be. And they were beginning to be drawn to faith. They were inclining toward faith. They were asking uh, those uh, key preliminary questions. Could this be? Could this be the Son of David? Could this be the Christ? Could this be the promised Messiah for whom we've longed and waited all these years? And yet the response of the religious leaders is very different. The religious leaders again see, uh, that the stage is set, yes, that things were happening that the prophets had said would happen and that, uh, uh, but all the, all the players were wrong. Jesus, Jesus isn't their man. He isn't their friend. He associates with the wrong people. He doesn't choose the religious. Uh, he chooses the broken, the downtrodden, uh, the downtrodden, the despised, and, and uh, 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 there is a, um, an offense that runs deep uh, in the hearts uh, of the. Of the local clergy, of the religious leaders, and so they say he 's with the wrong crowd, that 's not the kind of church that we want, that 's not the kind of, of, of Messiah that we desire, and they're determined not to accept the fact that he may indeed be the son of David. and so unable to point and say, "Wait a minute." You know, what this guy is doing is counterfeit. Uh, this isn't genuine. This isn't what it appears to be. This is all sort of smoke and mirrors. Unable to say that he did not do what all had seen him man- manifestly do here and at other times. They said, yes, he worked a miracle. But we'll tell you how he did it. He did it by the powers of darkness. He did it because he's in league with the devil. He's in league with Beelzebub, uh, which is is variously translated either Lord of the house or or more frequently Lord of the Flies or even Lord of the Dunghem it was one of the one of the names uh, those titles if you will that the jews uh, gave to satan and they said it is by the power of satan that he's done this thing and that was their accusation sure he's working miracles but it's by the dark side that he's doing these things and jesus in his response says two things he says first of all your accusation is really dumb And secondly, he says, your accusation is really dangerous. Dangerous not for me, but dangerous for you. And in making his case for these two points, the dumbness and and the danger of this accusation, uh, he will, under each one of these points, give three three, um, illustrations or arguments to demonstrate, first, the, the stupidity of their charge against him, and secondly, the danger of leveling such a charge. So let's look at the text and, and we'll try to bring it home and see what, uh, what does this uh, have to do with me in and, and, and my situation? What does it have to do with here and now today? The charge is that Jesus has done something good by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds first with an argument that's a, a very common sense argument. He says in verse 25, a kingdom, a city, a household divided against itself cannot stand. And that's a basic uh, a principle uh, of life. The first illustration he employs is this. If you're seeking to build a kingdom, you don't take your, your two best... Uh, uh regiments, your two best armies, and put them down in the city square and turn them loose on one another. That's not that that's not going to help your cause. That's not going to build your kingdom. Um, that's not going to help uh, you in any way. If you're going to um, if you're if you're setting up your fortifications, you don't turn your artillery on yourself and try to destroy your own city. And so Jesus says, what do you think? talking uh, about the, the prince of darkness here, do you think he's stupid? Do you think he's going to unleash his own power and undo and reverse the chaos and the destruction and the hurt and the pain that it is his attempt to bring upon God's creation and suddenly start and begin to do good things, healing and caring and building up and binding the broken... He says, not on your life. That's not going to happen. A kingdom divided against itself will fall. Now this isn't Jesus' point, but it's an obvious, obvious uh, corollary to the principle our Lord is calling our attention to here. A kingdom, a household divided against itself will fall. Husbands and wives, if your children look and see you always at cross-purposes, with one another, constantly in conflict, never moving together, never agreeing on on a basic vision for where that family is going, that house will almost certainly fall because it's a house divided against itself. A church divided against itself will fall, and so a city and so a nation. We see right now what is uh, termed a culture wars going on and our hearts should break for our nation. There's a, there's a difference between a, a healthy diversity on the one hand and having a deep division in which a, a nation is divided against itself, like a house divided against itself. It cannot long stand. And Jesus says this simply is a principle which is obvious. And so he says it's absurd. It's It's dumb that you should level such a charge. And the second illustration that he gives, and, and here we see what a, what a masterful lawyer Jesus would have made. He really plays back here on the heads of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had those of their own number who who believed or who were believed by the Pharisees to be involved in the ministry of exorcism. And we don't know if they were really doing this or... Are simply putting on some kind of, of ritual or show and, and thinking that they were actually casting out demons. Jesus doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say. But it's clear that they had people involved in ministries of exorcism whom they believed were casting out demons. And so Jesus says, wait a minute. What I've done here is the same thing that you claim that your people are doing. Let's ask them. When a demon is cast out, is it cast out by the power of God or of Satan? In verse 27. Now the moment that he does that, they realize sort of their, their, their quandary. Because if they say it's being done by the power of Satan, then they've accused their own people. And if on the other hand they say it's by the power of God, then they've vindicated Jesus. Uh, and shown their own charges or faults and dumb. Uh, so that's Jesus' second line of argument. What about you? Are you going to lay yourselves open to the same charges? Ask your exorcists if this can be done by the power of Satan. And then his third uh, argument or illustration coming down in verse 29. Again, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house uh, if you want to get something that you be, believe belongs to a strong man, you just don't go up and, and tap on the door and say, I'm here for your, your plasma flat screen TV and your money and your jewels. Uh, and by the way, I'll take the key to your car. Uh, he's just not going to surrender that. You're going to have to incapacitate him to tie him up. You're going to have to uh, draw a weapon and only then can you take something uh, from his house. Now, I I, I believe that the church has often failed to hear what Jesus is saying in this verse. There's a, there's a hazard both in overplaying Satan's power, as we'll see in a moment, and there's also a hazard in underplaying it as well. But Jesus is telling us right here that in his ministry that he has bound the strong man. And now you can say it's a funny way of binding him. Uh, doesn't uh, Peter talk about Satan being uh, this uh, roaring lion who's uh, uh, going around seeking whom he may devour? Uh, the problem is that sometimes I think we're we're, we're too uh, we're too literal, we're too visual with the metaphors of Scripture. Uh, he's speaking of power, authority. He's not talking about getting you know, sort of Satan up against the wall and spread eagle and, and cuffing him. He's not talking about binding, uh, you know, in that sense, uh, um, his power to hurt, his power to wound. And what Jesus is saying, I believe, with regard to himself, with regard to his ministry, is that Satan is bound. Where did it happen? It happened in the wilderness. You remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Satan went out into the wilderness to do the same to Jesus that he had done to our first parent. The Bible speaks of Adam as the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam was tempted with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life and he fell and consequently, God's good creation was turned into a wilderness. We have all the consequences of that sin visited upon God's creation. And the second Adam came and went out into the wilderness and led us back to the garden. And there he faced Satan down. And the same three temptations were brought to him as were brought to our first parents. But the second Adam stood And he resisted him with the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. And Satan's power was broken. There was a demonstration now in time and space that Satan cannot simply have his way with those who will submit themselves to the word of God and to the Lord's power. Jesus didn't drive him away in his own innate strength. He did it in the same way that you and I are to do it, filled with the Spirit, standing under the authority of God's Word, and saying to the tempter uh, and to the temptation, it is written, thus saith the Lord. And he drives, as it were, Satan from the field, so that now in Christ, as the kingdom moves forward, Satan is bound and his house can be plundered. Indeed, we can look at the the nations before Jesus and see them under the deception of Satan and then see how after Jesus' ministry, the gospel begins to move out through the world to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation and people group. And I think in the book of Revelation, whatever else the binding of Satan there refers to, it's referring to the ministry of Jesus who, as it were, chained him for all those who are in Christ as the word goes out in power. There's also something that he's saying here about the presence of the kingdom that you and I need to grasp if we would not just live live sort of looking longingly for the day that's coming and failing to see the challenge of today. Did you hear what he said there in verse 28? But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Where the power of God is at work, through the ministry of Jesus, in the midst of His people, the kingdom of God has come. Not come in all of its fullness. Not come... In all of the glory that will yet to be revealed when at last the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. But it has come in those places where people are living even as Jesus lived in submission to the spirit and to the word of the living God. The kingdom, the rightful crown rights, the claims of Lord Jesus has come. Do you know that kind of power in your life? Can you say as you live your life, the strong man has been bound and in Christ, I am by his enabling grace beginning to plunder his domain. That's one sense in which we need to to look and see a spiritual warfare. Now what's the bottom line in all of this? And how does it really impact upon us The force of our Lord's argument in this first section is found in this, that he is able to say to those who would bring an accusation against him, look at my deeds. Look at what I have done and tell me what is wrong. Look at what I've done. Remember, uh, he's done this before throughout Matthew's gospel. Look at my works. What have I done that's worthy of your accusation. I've healed. Are you going to accuse me for doing good? And here in our text, he asks, what have I done? You're saying this is the work of Beelzebub. How can you be so dumb? How can you turn things on their heads? Examine what I've done. Can you really bring any charge against anything that I've done? Don't talk about nefarious, dark schemes uh, uh, underneath that you can't prove. Don't talk about what's in my heart or, or, or what's in my mind. Look at what I've done and tell me what is wrong. And they could never do that. Jesus would use this argument again and again. Uh, John uh, would record Jesus in controversy again in John chapter 10. And they're bringing charges against him again. And Jesus says, if you don't believe my words, then believe me because of what you've seen me do. Now what's the application of that? In this time of what we call Again, cult- culture wars. Uh, our words are being thrown around. And you and I who call ourselves the body of Christ in the world, who claim that people who would know Christ should be able to look at us, should be able to say to those who, who stand against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, not listen more carefully to our explanation of the gospel, that too, yes. That's how people are saved. But the proof ought to be in saying, look at us. Look at us. What charge do you bring against us? Have you any accusation? And the tragedy, I'm speaking of myself now, is that too many of us spend our lives in words and cannot say, look at our lives. Look at our deeds What charge can you bring? Our lives are poured out for Jesus Christ. And we're seeking to serve Him in all His fullness. The danger of hearing only the message of justification by grace through faith, which is the message that saves, is a failing to hear that we were saved for good works. Saved not by good works, but for good works. We know it well, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Jesus would say, to those that would bring accusations, you silly, dumb people. Your accusations are baseless because when you look at my life, you see what I've done. What I've only done is to go around healing the broken and ministering to the down and out, caring for the hurting and the wounded. That's been my life. What charge can you bring? And Peter, who had gone around Galilee and Judea with Jesus would later say in his epistle, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, don't our words count? Yes, our words count. And Jesus turns now to our words in this second part because he says not only is this accusation, this charge dumb, but it's dangerous because words are dangerous. He begins to develop this and and again he uses these three illustrations. He begins with verse 30. In verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's he talking about? He's saying there's... There's no possibility for neutrality. You can't sit on the fence with regard to Jesus. You can say, you know, uh, I have an option. Uh, you know, I have two candidates to vote for. And and, and you can say, I, I don't know whether to take job A or job B or, or to marry person A or person B. Those are Uh, all the kinds of places in life where you can sort of sit on the fence. You can straddle. You can, you can, um, uh, um, not make a decision. But Jesus says there can be no fence sitting. The moment that you come into contact with Him, your play, your, your life is placed in crisis. And He says the crisis is this. You, if you are not for Him, you are against Him. Now, sometimes people try to soften that by saying, uh, hey, wait a minute. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 9 that, who's, that he who's not against us is on our side. So he's softening that, isn't he? But that's not what he says. These are two entirely different things, two entirely different contexts. The, this text in Matthew, and again, when, when Luke, in a, in, a, in a parallel account of this, uh, gives this same quote, uh, Jesus is talking about how people relate to him, to Jesus, to, the, to, to Jesus as the, as the Son of God, as the Savior of sinners, As the Lord and Sovereign. How do you respond to me? And he says, if you are not for me, then you're against me. You can't be neutral. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples have looked and seen a guy who's who's doing things in Jesus' name. He's caring for the poor and the hurting. He's bringing healing. But he's not part of their group. And they say, hey, Master, he's not one of us. He's not in our group. He's not a part of our denomination. Make him stop. He's using your name. He's doing all these things unauthorized. And Jesus says, leave him alone. If he's not against us, then he's for us. He says, us, not me. If he's not against us, then he's, he's, he's for us. He's speaking about groups, groups within the people of God, groups within the church. It's easy to say, well, we don't like what they're, they're doing out there. They're not of our, uh, denominational stripe. They're not of our group. Lord, make them stop. And he says, leave them alone. If they're not against us, they're for us. He's giving a cup of water in my name. Leave him alone. He has his reward. The only thing that matters isn't which of the groups that you're in, but your relationship to Jesus Christ. And there when it comes to Christ, if you're not for him then you're against him. You can't sit on the fence there. He says, in fact, if you aren't gathering with me, in other words, drawing people to me, you're scattering them. That's what's happening here. Jesus had done this, this mighty deed. The people are looking. They're starting to be drawn to Jesus. Could, be this, uh, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the long-promised Savior and deliverer, and champion of God's people. And the Pharisees come in and say with their words, see, and they seek to scatter people away from Jesus and says, no, he's not the one. What he does is by Beelzebub, And they're not gathering, but they're scattering. And then he turns to some of the most difficult and and convicting verses in Scripture, ones that have caused tremendous anxiety uh, to a lot of people because they concern um, what we call the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will uh, will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come what does what does the lord mean does he mean that someone who foolishly or perhaps in some uh, stupor or drunken dare uh, you know uh, um profanes or curses the holy spirit now he's sinned in pardon unpardonably i don't think so Look at it again in its context. He's saying, in the context of of chapter 12, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the persistent attempt to call what God is doing a work of Satan. It is this subversive, uh, perverse assignment of calling what is good evil and calling what is evil good It's the final stage of declension away from God that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. Paul there uses the the sexual analogy, but it covers all kinds of sins. In verse 24 of Romans uh, uh, chapter 1, he says that the first stage of declension away from God can be seen in a society or an individual marked by heterosexual immorality. He says the second stage in verse 26 of going further from God is the perversion of of sexual desire. And it's now marked by homosexual immorality. But he says the final stage of declension away from God in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1 is people who approve those things. Who don't just do them, recognizing these things are wrong, seeking to sort of conceal or hide their acts. But they say these things are perfectly permissible. They call what is evil good and what is good evil. And that seems to be this last declension away. It is looking at what God says and at God's work and saying that this is of the devil. This is wrong. This is wicked. This is evil. I wonder if we see this so clearly when it comes to our own predispositions uh, and prejudices. When we, when we run perilously perilously close to this kind uh, of sin and accusation, um, uh, would uh, would say to continue to to pray for Dan and Susan Steers. They continue ministry probably even as we speak in Ghana. Uh, right now, but, uh, in talking to Dan about, uh, uh, the, um, pervasiveness of, um, of, of Pentecostalism and, and, the charismatic movement, uh, particularly, uh, in, in third world countries and, and, uh, in the African church, um, uh, and, and many times, uh, evangelicals look at at that, that, that charismatic and Pentecostal movement. And, and because it seems to have many things that are uncomfortable to us and at times seems like uh, aberrant behavior, we tend not only to say, you know, that I'm not uh, sure about that or, uh, or I have difficulty with that. A, a tendency of many evangelicals, and I've heard preachers say this, is to point at that movement and say, that's of the devil. Man, I, I tell you, when you do that, you're walking dangerously close to this sin that Jesus says will not be forgiven. Because if God is at work in that, you run the risk of calling a work of God a work of the devil. And if you want to quench the work of the Spirit in your own life, I, I think the best way is to carry on like that. Let let God, the sovereign one, judge his work and let God determine what's of him. Whenever we look at things that people are doing and we don't understand, it's one thing to say, you know, I don't think uh, perhaps that's sound doctrine and I don't see how that squares uh, with this text. That's one thing. It's quite another thing uh, to, to seek to stand in God's place and to pronounce condemnation. I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise discernment. I'm not saying that we shouldn't test and prove things biblically. But I am saying that you and I are not in the position of standing in judgment. And in this sense, you and I must understand that if on the one hand we can overplay Satan's power, there's another sense we can significantly underplay it. Uh, There's a... Uh, there's a most interesting and arresting passage to me in in Jude, that little one-chapter book uh, before Revelation when Michael the archangel contested with the devil regarding the body of Moses. It's an interesting passage there. The archangel Michael didn't dare pronounce a reviling accusation against the devil, but instead the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. And so you and I must walk that line of realizing that when we are in Christ Jesus, uh, the devil is a defeated foe, a strong man, yes. But when we're in Christ, the strong man has been bound, and his house can be plundered. But when we uh, strike out on our own, seeking to stand, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, to... Um, uh, to usurp God's prerogatives and pronounce reviling curses, uh, we must see the archangel not even attempting such a bodacious thing. Indeed, he says, The Lord rebuke you. We're not the judges of the living and the dead. And finally, uh, we're out of time. Jesus ends with these final verses in verses 33 through 37 saying words are dangerous, so use them carefully. You will be held accountable for every careless word you speak because what is inside of you may not show up in your your carefully prepared speeches and those times when you're able to sort of carefully choreograph uh, a particular uh, situation. But in the trenches of life, in the times of pressure and really stubbing your toe, It may all come out because words spoken in such moments often reveal what's in the heart, whether good or bad. So guard your heart. It is there, these wellsprings of life, that the overflow comes. Out of the overflow of the heart, uh, the mouth speaks forth. By your words you will be justified, and by your words uh, you will be condemned. The power of a life lived for Jesus Christ. What we're to seek. So that even those who would bring charges against us must look and say, This is a life given to good works. This is a person who's not perfect and who knows it. Uh, Yet these are ones seeking to grow into lives that look like Jesus' life. May God help us. May God help us in seeking to do good and speaking words that reveal that goodness, words that heal and not hurt, words that discern and not, uh, judge. May that be not a, a veneer, but, uh, it be the God, that it be the work of God's transforming grace going on inside our lives. God help us to that end. Let's pray. Father, we, we plead and we, we beg that you may help us to grow into the Lord Jesus, knowing that we will not until at last we see him, but may we now be learning so to be. That we will act and speak with growing grace and love for you and for one another and for this needy world. Help us, oh God, to that end we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.